0: Depression-era New York was a tough time for a guy just looking to get by. The pressures of feeding a family, the lack of available work, the poor conditions suffered from much of the work that was available, and at the end of the day, you couldn't even relax with a drink or drown your sorrows in the bottom of a bottle. At least, not legally. Whilst laws attempted to stop people from drinking alcohol, the culture of the speakeasy ripped through the underground. It was a place where one could relax and unwind listen to some live music, play some cards, or set up an insurance fraud with a few of the friendly locals. It was the latter that took place in a small dive in the Bronx over several months in 1933 that would highlight how desperate the times could really be. It would also prove to be one of the most catastrophic displays of disorganised crime that the 19th century newspapers would ever write about in what was dubbed as New York's most fantastic murder. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 6, Episode 5. I hope you're all well. I'm Ben, as always. This week we've got a story that I actually didn't realise was as uh, well known as, as it is, or as it turned out to be, um... I I found this story and thought, oh yeah, this is a interesting one. This could work for Dark Histories. I started looking into it and uh, still thought it was like you know not a particularly well known story. And then when I mentioned it to a few people, uh, specifically Hallie, the producer, uh, I said, oh you know I found this story and, and, and apparently uh, yeah it's quite quite well known. But anyway, uh, doesn't have to do it again. Uh, so this is my take on uh, Iron Mike Malloy the man who would not die. In America, prohibition had been suggested, and even put into limited practice, in several states prior to the Civil War. Fervent religious groups had given birth to ideas such as the temperance movement, which promoted individuals to abstain from drinking, and the general consensus that drinking was a sinful action bubbled away under the surface for a century before any widespread prohibition laws were enacted. With the introduction of fighting, once the war rolled around, the federal government quickly realised how useful the tax money had been from the sale of spirits and beer, and quickly, the handful of states that had banned the consumption or distilling of alcohol soon repealed their laws in efforts to help fund the war effort. Once the war was over, thoughts once again turned towards prohibition, with one of the first examples of peaceful protest in the country focused on the banning of saloons and drinking which was led by the Women's Christian Temperance Union, who staged sit-ins across the many male-only saloons and bars across the country, arguing that drinking led to increased cases of domestic violence and destitution as well as wider social problems. They also campaigned against tobacco use, prostitution and for increased sanitation, at the same time promoting an early example of women's suffrage. In 1917, amidst the fighting of the First World War, the Senate voted in favour of a proposed 18th Amendment that would, barring a few very specific reasons, such as for religious or medical use, prohibit the manufacture, sale or transportation of intoxicating liquors across the United States. The amendment became law in 1919 and went into effect a year later on January 17, 1920. Anyone caught breaking the law could find themselves with fines of up to $1,000 and potentially months or even years locked up behind bars. Of course, with the solid year to prepare, it did not take long for an illegal industry to crop up. Since the act did not technically prohibit the drinking of alcohol by law, there was very little risk for someone who just wanted to grab a drink now and then, or perhaps every morning, and with the demand so high, a supply is always quick to follow. Barrels of wine and spirits had been stockpiled by the wealthiest from before the enactment of the law. Sales of home steals rocketed and, of course, smuggling became a lucrative business. Doctors with shady leanings prescribed medicinal alcohol to those with the cash to pay and others just forged prescriptions entirely, creating a subset of fighting amongst lobbyists. Despite the medical association pushing for a move away from the medicinal use of alcohol for several years, new alcohol-based cures were being proclaimed weekly by the less scrupulous doctors, and the complete opposite, along with calls for tighter restrictions, being called for by the prohibitionists. The act's widespread unpopularity was plain to see in any newspaper of the era, whose pages became filled with stories of corrupt officials, booze raids, bootleggers and law-defying saloons. On the flip side, Stories of falling crime rates, the halving of Cincinnati's murder rate in the first year of Prohibition, cited as one example, pressed the public for the need of the continuance of the act, despite the obvious dichotomy between the two narratives, that people were, by and large, getting just as drunk as they always were. Far from drinking in the secret confines of their own homes, many drank in the newly emerging, utterly illegal, gin joints that were springing up throughout urban centres across the country Not an entirely new invention Illegal bars had been operating in the United States since the days of the blind tiger or blind pig Illegal bars in Maine, one of the states that had enacted prohibition for a short period before the civil war which would sell tickets to an attraction such as an unusual animal A free drink was included with every ticket, thus the laws were circumvented and everyone was happy With the introduction of widespread prohibition, this concept positively boomed and it was estimated that throughout the 1920s, 32,000 known illegal bars were operating at any one time in New York alone. Newly christened as the speakeasy, the bars, which now catered to both men and women, ranged across the spectrum from bohemian jazz joints with exotic names like Gypsy Land, whose fame stemmed from its equally exotic dancers Or the Cave of the Fallen Angels, a basement club that played host to many high-ranking officials and dignitaries to the city, to the dingy back-street rat dives with smoke-filled rooms, sticky floors, questionable patrons and even more questionable liquor. In Greenwich Village, art students and high schoolers hung out in small cabaret bars like the Jolly Friars whilst Black Tire Fairs full of glitz and glam operated in multi-story, heavily-themed hotel suites such as the Embassy Club, offering exclusive membership for a mere $250 a year, or the circus that came complete with performing acrobats. From high society to the unemployed and the homeless, everyone was patronising one of the Prohibition era's worst-kept secrets. The more discerning joints would require an ID card in order to enter, only handed out after a thorough screening process, whilst the majority of others relied on passwords, coded entry, and burly doormen with their own method of screening. These methods to stay on the down-low weren't always successful, and raids happened relatively frequently on those that weren't paying off corrupt officials, or were drawing too much attention to themselves. The truth was, however, that in New York, the undeniable home of the speakeasy, there were over 6 million inhabitants drinking in over 30,000 bars, policed by a fairly unmotivated force of only 200 officers who worked in the prohibition bureau. Whilst raids sent a strong public message and appeased the prohibitionists for a while, it was far more efficient for law enforcement to go after the source of the alcohol, focusing on the smugglers and the bootleggers rather than the bars and joints that often had their stocks stashed away in secret alcoves or hidden behind false walls anyway. The problem the police had with focusing on a top-down approach was the industry's complicated ties with organised crime. Due to the very illegal operations one would have to undertake in order to run a speakeasy, the vast majority of them were either run, supplied or looked after by some form of organised crime That was far better equipped at evading law enforcement. If the prohibition law achieved anything, it propelled crooks and petty mobsters to the status of kingpins and millionaires. Of all the crooks, bootleggers, liquor lords, beer barons and mobsters in New York, three outlasted the rest. Owen Madden, Dutch Schultz and Waxy Gordon. Career petty criminals, before they'd reached school leaving age, All three were born into the underclasses of the city and grew up on the streets. By the end of Prohibition, they'd amassed fortunes, taken control of vast swathes of gang territory and placed themselves at the head of the city's criminal underworld. Only Madden had turned to crime after seeing his mother robbed in the street and thought that it looked so easy he'd have been a fool not to get into the rap himself. Things escalated fairly quickly and by the age of 14 he would beaten a shopkeeper to death with a metal bar, starting his criminal career as he meant to go on. By his death he was known as only the killer and counted himself a millionaire. During Prohibition he started off in bootlegging, stealing stashes of pre-Prohibition era liquor before he rose up to become the leader of a rum smuggling ring, owning and supplying speakeasies throughout the city, eventually becoming the owner of the Cotton Club, booking musicians like Louis Armstrong, Fats Waller and Duke Ellington, as well as managing a brewery and a boxing promotion company. Arthur Fliegenheimer, a.k.a. Dutch Schultz, rose to prominence during Prohibition, brewing and selling illegal beer, running speakeasies and a glamorous nightclub. A keen reader as a child, he would have done well in school if he hadn't dropped out. He hustled at pool and excelled as a petty thief before getting into liquor trafficking in the early 1920s. His smarts helped him to realise that many of the mobsters he was hanging around with were nothing more than grunts and chose instead to forge his own path, one that would be decidedly more business-like. He formed a gang of beer barons, expanded quickly and wound up extorting restaurant owners via his protection racket as well as strong-arming his way into the tightly locked-down gambling industry. A peculiar character, he held little stock in dressing nice, quoted Shakespeare and paid his library late fines. By the late 1920s, if you were buying alcohol for a speakeasy, there was every chance you'd have been supplied somewhere down the chain by Dutch. Waxy Gordon was born in New York to Polish Jewish immigrants and quickly slipped into crime, perfecting the art of the pickpocket. He jumped through the ranks of the teenage gangs until eventually being hired as a rum runner, smuggling alcohol into New York to supply the speakeasies. It was the start of a beautiful career in alcohol for Waxy, who, by the end of the prohibition, was a millionaire, owning several breweries, distilleries and speakeasies up and down the East Coast, whose bootlegging operations he more or less ran. Ostentatious to a T, he cruised through the streets of New York in a limousine and stayed in Manhattan penthouses pulling the strings on much of the alcohol smuggling and distribution chains for the city. On a small, unassuming street just east of the Husden River sat a speakeasy that almost certainly lived at the far end of the glamour spectrum, firmly in rat-dive territory. 3775 3rd Avenue was a single room that hosted nothing but a few small wooden tables and a makeshift counter stocked with whiskey. Its clientele ranged from the unemployed job seekers looking to pass another fruitless day looking for temporary work to the alcoholic homeless that staffed its bar. To call it shady would have been an insult to the underworld and though it was certainly touched by the slick characters of New York's organised crime gangs the men who ran the joint were anything but. Crime certainly coursed through the veins of the dimly lit smoke film room but it was anything but organised. Like many kids his age who grew up during the Great Depression, Tony Marino had had a pretty rough upbringing. His mother died when he was nine years old, which proved to be a harsh precursor to his teenage years that kicked off with a tumble down a set of stairs. The fall left him with a permanent scar on his temple and a head injury that he decided was surely the cause of all of his troubles, including his recent expulsion from school for fighting and ditching classes. With his extended family writing him off as a lost cause, he was fast to fall by the wayside. Having always had a penchant for petty crime, stealing and robbing came more or less second nature and he began hanging out with prostitutes, which led to him contracting syphilis. He had tried and failed to kill himself twice, the first time by jumping from a fifth story window and the second by hanging himself, and all of this was done before he had even turned 16. He stumbled through temporary employment, bouncing from menial job to unemployment and back again for several years, until, like many of the New York criminal underclass of the age, the prohibition came along and gave him a purpose in life. It was the lure of the speakeasy that hooked Marino, and by 1928, he had ventured into a partnership running a speake in Harlem and married his wife, Eleanor. The two had settled into a small place in the Bronx and had a baby, however, or was not domestic bliss Pregnancy had revealed to Eleanor her husband's syphilitic issues after she had undergone a routine blood test only to find that she had contracted the disease In truth things at home hadn't been great for the pair for a while Marino had a habit of losing his temper at one point he flew into such a rage that he took an axe to the furniture and he frequently threatened Eleanor and the baby with violence By 1931 it had eventually grown to be too much for Eleanor who demanded that he visit a doctor in order to treat his various venereal diseases which she blamed for his instability. Despite his initial protests, he eventually conceded after Eleanor left and went to stay with her family and an abscess formed on the lymph nodes of his groin. Marino booked an appointment with the Dr. Alphonse Civiello who inspected him and recommended a stay in a sanatorium. The doctor felt Marino was peculiar in his actions and that his speech was. More or less simple, like that of a child. Far from keen on the doctor's advice to commit himself to a sanatorium, he sacked off the medical visits and went back home to continue on as if nothing had happened. By now, Marino's first speakeasy had folded after his business partner, who was fronting all the money for the operation, had walked out on him, sending it quickly to its inevitable demise. Marino opened a second speak in the Bronx at 3775 3rd Avenue. Far from the glamour of a penthouse bar or the chic fashion of a Greenwich Village Café Cabaret, Marino's place was a single room, stuffed behind an empty shop front in a short row of single-storey shops. From the outside, it had all the welcoming appeal of a vacant, potentially derelict old store. The inside was not much better. Furnished with a single, mouldy old linen sofa, and a few small wooden tables and chairs, a shabby makeshift bar stood on one wall, stocked with a handful of dubious bottles, and a plate of sardines of the clientele to finger through. A partition wall at the back of the room separated the toilet from the front of house. Privacy, like a good drink, was not something one found at 3775. Marino ran the place, but working the bar for the majority of the opening hours was a man named Joseph Murphy, or Red to anyone who asked murphy had a by now familiar story to tell as far as his upbringing was concerned orphaned and passed around various foster families who all struggled to rein in his behavioral issues he eventually wound up in the mansfield state hospital where he resided for 10 years during his treatment at the hospital it was discovered he had an iq of 56 and fairly severe developmental problems in 1929 aged 25 Murphy decided he'd had enough of life on the ward and ran away to New York, living on the streets and drinking himself to oblivion when funds would afford him the pleasure. It was through alcohol that he crossed paths with Marino, who employed him to work the bar at 37.75, a job he took with relish as he spent as much time pouring drinks for himself as he did for anyone else. Most nights, he'd drink himself blind at the bar and then crash out on the grotty sofa, only to wake the next morning to do it all over again. And this was more or less how life passed at 3775. An endless cycle of alcoholism set to a backdrop of gambling on cards slashed through with the occasional story of petty crime from the regular clientele. A fateful evening in June of 1932, however, was about to change all of that, injecting the hushed tones of conspiracy to the usual proceedings. Marino was sat drinking with one of the regulars to 3775, Frank Pasqua. The owner of a funeral parlour and local undertaker, he had a better reputation and was a little better put together than many of the Speak's usual patrons. That evening, they were joined at the table by the local greengrocer, Daniel Kreisberg. Kreisberg was another anomaly. Aside from being a legitimate businessman, he also had a solid family life, and aside from the sins of the Speakeasy, he was a pretty straight arrow. Slumped at the bar was one of 3775's most well-seasoned features, an old Irishman named Michael Malloy. At one time, Michael Malloy had been a welcome customer at 3775. An Irish immigrant from County Donegal, he had managed to reach the ripe age of 60 by fumbling through jobs, cleaning the filth from the gutters around New York slums. In 1932, he held down a position as a stationary fireman shoveling coal into boilers, but that hadn't lasted as usual. At times, he had done the odd job at Pasquale's funeral business, working mainly for food, shelter, or a drink. Something of a loner, he lived his life in New York in relative anonymity, and spent every night he could afford to, and plenty that he couldn't, propped up against a bar in a speakeasy, getting as drunk as funds or bar tabs would possibly allow. And tabs were precisely the problem. At 3775, Marino's patience with Malloy had started to wear a little thin. What had started with a small tab had slowly increased to Malloy just drinking for free, and boy could Malloy drink. He was on good terms with Murphy, he was happy to supply the old drunk, and whilst it would have been appreciated by Malloy, It was only sinking him deeper into debt with Marino in the long run. That night, in July, as they sat around the table, seeing Marino's look of despair staring over at Malloy drinking with Murphy, Pasquale suggested a fateful move. Why not get the old man insured? He was elderly, after all, and clearly he didn't look after his health. As far as most could see, he looked one bad hangover away from a casket, and Pasquale should know... He saw them come through his funeral home often enough. Marino knew what Pasquale was suggesting. Malloy, with no relatives or friends, was little more than a homeless nobody, a name on a page, so why not cash in on him when his time was up? At least it would take care of the bar tab. In any case, plying Malloy with drink would just be accelerating the inevitable. He nodded in agreement and took confidence from the fact that Pasquale knew how to deal with the insurance companies and take care of all the paperwork, having to liaise with them so much in his working life. Hell, Pasquale could even take care of the funeral, a nice little earner for him. The two men, speaking in low tones in their native Italian, agreed. Malloy would be unlikely to cause a fuss, as long as he thought there was a drink for him at the end of it, he'd go along with almost anything. The three men, Kreisberg being privy to the conversation, all nodded in solemn agreement. The plan was pretty simple. On the 29th of July, Marino suggested to Malloy, who was back drinking in 3775, that he should go get some life insurance. Malloy went along with the idea, just as hoped, and the two men popped over to see Pasqua, who was setting up a meeting with an insurance agent from the Prudential Life Insurance Company. It was all fairly straightforward. The men gave Malloy's date of birth as 1885, shaving off a cold 20 years from his real age, and told the insurance agent that he was employed by Pasquale at the funeral home. Pasquale wanted to take out life insurance as a safety net for himself. After all, if anything was to happen to his employee, who had no family and friends to pick up the bill, he feared it would fall to him to pay for the cost of a funeral, and as such, he named himself the beneficiary, paid the $8.08 premium, and everyone signed off on the application. Things were not to fall into place so easily, however. Pasquale, being both the policyholder and the beneficiary, immediately raised alarm bells during the application process. Charles Minervini, the assistant superintendent at the Prudential Life Insurance Company, arranged for a visit to the funeral parlor to speak with both Pasquale and Malloy, just to ensure things were all above board. For a seasoned insurance man such as himself, it did not take long for Minervini to conclude that things were far from acceptable. He listened to Pasquale's story and watched as Malloy nodded his head blindly next to him, left the funeral parlour, and promptly returned to the office and rejected the application. The whole process had taken almost a month, and that whole time, Malloy had continued to drink at 37.75, practically for free. Marino had informed the old man that his line of credit had been reopened, and his tap was back on, and now, as they waited for the insurance to come through, Marino watched on daily as Malloy enjoyed his stock. At this point he was unwilling to take no for an answer, and so they tried again with a different company and This time was blessed with a true salesman, Joseph Pereggio worked for Metropolitan Life Insurance and lived for a healthy wedge of commission, ever keen to make a sale. He worked with Pasqua to make a policy happen, visiting Malloy at thirty seven seventy five and signing off on a policy for three thousand dollars once again. Pasquale paid the premium of $8.10 and the application was sent off to be pored over in detail by the men at the office. Once more, however, it was firmly rejected. Peretia wasn't keen to let the sale go and tried a second time, but the results were just the same. They would need a new plan if the whole thing was to ever get past the first stages. Fortunately for Marino and Pasquale, they had found a willing helper in the young insurance man. The next plan became a whole lot more complicated, and inevitably ended up roping more people into the scheme. The trio first got Murphy into the group, as they needed a second Irishman who could pretend to be a relative of Malloy to serve as the beneficiary of the policy. The problem they were having was keeping the plan on the down low in such a small place as thirty-seven seventy-five. People had begun noticing the huddled conversations between Pasqua, Marino, Kreisberg, and Murphy. And whilst most of them didn't particularly matter, there was one who very much did. Anthony Bastone, aka Tough Tony, was the alcohol supplier or beer baron to 3775. Men such as Tough Tony worked their own patches throughout the city, sometimes stealing or losing territory to other suppliers. Their business was run on the back of their individual power, threatening speak owners and offering protection. Tough Tony worked throughout the Bronx, enforcing his reign with a pair of revolvers that he kept in his belt. With his territory where it was, it's highly likely that he would have been working somewhere in the supply chain of Dutch shorts and was a character that you didn't choose to cross if you could help it. Tough Tony had noticed the conspiratorial huddles in the speak and had spied the insurance men hanging about and decided that he wanted in on whatever was afoot. As far as Pasquale and Marino were concerned, you just simply did not say no to Tough Tony. And so, the group grew to six, including Tough Tony's partner, Joe Maglioni. Straight away, the inclusion of Tough Tony caused tensions, who thought the plan of plying Malloy with drink was foolish, instead suggesting that they just walk him outside and whack him. This direct approach was pushed aside by the group, and they appeased Tony by suggesting his methods could be turned to as a last resort. Besides, the business of the insurance had still not been resolved yet, Peretia had dropped a blank application form round to 3775 for Marino and Malloy to fill out, a move well out of the realms of legitimacy, as all forms were meant to be completed in the presence of an agent. But Peretia was pliable, and as long as all the right signatures were on the right lines, then what did it really matter at the end of the day? Pasquale filled out the form, filling Malloy's name in as Nicholas Mallory, gave his occupation as a florist's assistant, born in Illinois in 1888, He worked closely with a florist in his day job and called on him to let him know that if anyone came in to ask after a man named Mellory, he should just play along. The policy was for $800, featuring double indemnity, and cost Pasqua $5.02 a month. He paid Peretia the first premium and handed over the forms. The policy was rubber-stamped shortly after, much to the relief of Marino and his men. Finally, the plan was properly underway. One thing was starting to feel glaringly obvious to anyone who could count, however. The policy was pretty light for a plan that now included six payouts. In order to fix the mass, the group decided to take out more policies, and through Peretia were introduced to a new agent for the Prudential Life Insurance Company, who signed off on two further policies, set up the same way as the Metropolitan Policy, except a few of the details were a little bit off. This time, Mallory had been born in 1892, and the signature was completely different. But, at this point, who was counting the number of rules bent to get the policies through? Two further policies were taken out for $494 at 65 cents apiece, taking the total up to a cool $3,576 to be cashed in should Malloy meet his unfortunate end at the bottom of a bottle. Looking at the old man, leaning on the bar, drunk for free once again on his whiskey, Marino decided it was time for Malloy to pay his debts. In truth, this was not Marino's first insurance rodeo. Four months earlier, in the spring of 1932, Marino had started having a fairly open affair with one of the clients of 3775. Mabel Carlson was a hairdresser from Washington, D.C., who had hailed from a decent family. At 27 years old, she was a good-looking blonde with a firm education and intelligence far above most that hung out at Marino's. A year earlier, her mother had died and she had been living in the ruins of a failing marriage, prompting her to run away to New York. But things in the big city had not gone quite to plan. If there was ever such a thing in the first place. A fairly big drinker, she fell to the lure of the speakeasies in double quick time, working her way through tabs until she's wound up right there at the bottom, knocking on the bar at 37.75. Marino took pity on Mabel, or, more likely, saw a desperate woman he could take advantage of and began taking her home, offering her a place to sleep for the night. This went down about as well as a sack of bricks with his wife, Eleanor, who eventually moved back to her family's home once more. The situation worked well for Marino for a while, but he was tired of her constant drinking. With the help of Pasquale. He convinced Mabel to take out life insurance policy for $2,000, placing himself as the beneficiary. Not long after, she had wound up dead in Marino's home. The cause of death had been bronchial pneumonia and nothing suspicious about the death was noticed. For Marino's part, he told the police that she had been drinking heavily for weeks before her death, despite his appeals for her to stop and go to see a doctor. A week after her death, the insurance paid out to Marino. Mabel's death may not have seemed suspicious at the time, but it had been anything but natural. Mabel had been sick with pneumonia for almost a week prior to her death, and sensing a windfall, Marino had opted to help nature along. He plied her with whiskey until she had passed out, undressed her, wrapped her in the bed linen, and poured cold water all over her, placing her on the bed by the window, which he left wide open before stepping out for the night. Cruel in the extreme, It had paid Marino well for very little effort, but the money never seemed to be enough, and now, staring over at Malloy at the bar, he saw another easy target. It was time to give nature a helping hand once again. Almost five months later, with the insurance policies finally in place, the plan for Malloy was now a simple one. The old man would simply be allowed to drink himself to death, and Murphy was tasked with plying him with as much whiskey and gin as was humanly possible. In order to appease Tough Tony, a backup plan had been floated, and Marino approached two bottom feeders, Edward Smith and John McNally, more commonly involved with robbery and larceny, taking them for a meeting at Pasquale's home, where they were offered $200 to run over Malloy. They weren't immediately too keen to get involved for such a paltry sum, but told the men they'd think about it. Meanwhile, back in 3775, Malloy was being welcomed with open arms every night and leaving absolutely legless. Day in and day out, the routine continued with Malloy looking none the worse for wear. It only took a week before Marino came to the conclusion that the plan was far too costly and needed to be stepped up. Rather than ply Malloy with his costly liquors, the decision was made to instead get him drunk and then switch the whiskey with wood alcohol. Since Prohibition, the usage of industrial methanol, which was sold tax-free, had been controlled by poisoning it with toxic chemicals in order to make it smell and taste particularly bad in efforts to make it undrinkable. Dubbed wood alcohol due to it being distilled from wood, it was commonly used as a pesticide, an antifreeze agent and a paint thinner, and throughout Prohibition it found a new use as a cocktail mixer in the sketchiest of speaks in a drink Known colloquially as smoke, despite its liability to cause blindness and death in anyone foolish enough to consume it. Whilst the best of the worst was put through a complicated process of boiling by bootleggers to remove the toxins, Malloy was not to be treated to any such thing. Murphy was sent down to the local paint store where he purchased the poison for ten cents a can, carrying it back to thirty seven seventy five to await the return of Malloy that evening. The night kicked off the same as any other from the past few months. Malloy had come in, drunk a few whiskies, and proceeded down the path to blind drunkenness. It was a miracle to Marino how the old man hadn't yet died of alcohol poisoning, but it was all under control. Once Murphy thought him drunk enough to not be able to taste the wood alcohol, he switched the bottles over and began pouring Malloy glass after glass of pure methanol. Watching on closely, Marino and tough Tony sat in awe of the old man, who knocked them back just as he had any other liquor. By the end of the evening, after consuming enough wood alcohol to have blinded any other person, he left the bar, intensely drunk, but on his own two feet. Permused, Marino could do little else but to wait and see what would become of the old man overnight. But the following day, when he walked in happy as could be and asked for a drink, Marino could do little but simply nod at Murphy and hope that the effects were just slow to kick in. As the days turned to weeks and Malloy kept returning for his nightly dose of industrial poison, all hope had begun to fade for an easy cash grab. Malloy continued to return, day after day, knocking back glass after glass of wood alcohol, until he wasn't even drinking whiskey at all anymore and the whole bar stank of the faintly sweet chemicals. It was late December before Malloy eventually pushed things too far, slipping into unconsciousness as he drained another glass and slumped onto the floor of the speak. Cautiously, Marino checked his breathing, which was faint, and decided to leave him on the floor overnight. With any luck, he'd come in the next day and Malloy would be dead. The following morning, however, Malloy awoke like any other, with a blinding headache and a severe case of rock-up. Stepping out, bleary-eyed, into the New York street, he went about his day as usual and returned once more to 37.75 that night to get back on the horse, much to the frustrated amazement of Merino. A single glass of pure wood alcohol should have been enough to kill most people or at the very least cause them severe illness. A second would have done the job for almost anyone. But here was Malloy, chugging away, glass after glass, and as far as anyone could see, He was having a great time doing it. Pasquale came up with the next plan. How about, he suggested, they poison the seafood at the end of the bar that Malloy was commonly found picking his way through after a few glasses of wood alcohol. A clutch of oysters was purchased and promptly placed in a bucket of wood alcohol and left to stew for several days. The hope was that the alcohol would pickle the rotten oysters in Malloy's stomach, delivering a payload of pain directly to his digestive system. That night, after Malloy was suitably hammered, Murphy produced a plate of seafood from behind the bar, popping it in front of Malloy, who couldn't believe his luck. Wriggling his fingers, he tucked in, finishing the plate off in double time before ordering a drink to wash it all down. Murphy poured him a fresh glass of methanol and stepped back, waiting for the magic of the oysters to happen. The following day, when Malloy returned again and ordered another drink, it was clear that the old man had not been phased a jot by the cunning plan. If he had been ill at all, he showed no signs of it less than 24 hours later as he sat back at the bar, smashing a fresh glass back to get the night started. It was clear that some extreme measures were going to need to be deployed if the Speaks' fishy murder plan were to have any success. Moving away from oysters, the group next considered the sardines that sat at the end of the bar, night after night. A tin was bought and left open to rot for several more days. The putrid mess was smeared onto a piece of bread, garnished with slithers of glass, a handful of metal filings that Marino had picked up from a local machine shop, and the whole thing was finished up with a sprinkling of carpet tacks. Once more, once Malloy was suitably drunk to have obliterated any sense of taste and smell, Murphy produced a snack of champions. It was like Christmas come early for Malloy, who was absolutely loving the Speaks' newfound propensity to serve food with their drinks, polishing off the sandwich with a warm feeling of happiness that only a full stomach could provide. And talking of full stomachs, there was nothing quite like a good drink after a hearty meal, he reminded Murphy, who bemusingly poured him a glass of wood alcohol to wash the whole thing down with. When Malloy walked into the speakeasy the following day in full health, it should not really have been to anyone's surprise. However, Marino did feel the sting somewhat when he rather hopefully requested another sardine sandwich. Deciding by now that things were just getting silly, Marino decided to fall back on Tough Tony's plan and purchase a Tommy gun. More than a little over the top, if rotten seafood and toxic industrial chemicals were not going to do the trick, a hail of machine gun fire certainly would. The plan had barely been conceived before it was shelved again, however. The fashionable firearm of choice for any self-respecting gangster, Marino had not bargained for the price of a Tommy gun and refused to pay the $50 he was quoted, and so Malloy lived to drink for another day. New Year came and went, and with January came a fresh bout of excitement in the speak. Malloy had not come in for a drink for a solid week. If the old man had finally died somewhere, he would eventually be discovered and just like that, Marino would be free to cash in the policies that by now were looking less and less like a worthwhile paycheck. All hopes were eventually dashed when Malloy eventually sauntered back into the bar at 37.75, explaining to his inquisitive friends that he had been resting up in hospital following a sore on his leg turning nasty. Marino was exasperated. Then it came to him. Why had he thought of it before? He'd already pulled off a successful murder. Why not just utilise the same method once more? That January was a cold one and snow was still falling, with temperatures overnight dropping way below freezing. Weighing it all up in his mind, he decided that it would be the best way to forge ahead and he waited for Malloy to return, which, like clockwork, was that very same evening. Malloy, as usual, sat down at the bar and spent the evening drinking enough wood alcohol to kill a small town. Once he'd passed out from drunkenness, Marino dragged him from the bar out into the empty night streets and dragged him a block to the north into the quiet confines of Crotona Park. Once he'd found a suitably out-of-the-way park bench, he tossed Malloy onto the seat, stripped his clothes and dumped a bucket of water on top of him. Surely this would do the job. The snow was falling as Marino left the park, a bitter wind ripping through the night. The next morning... Marino opened up at 37.75, entering the small store where he found Murphy predictably asleep on the dirty old sofa against the wall. Even less welcome, however, was the man asleep in the basement. Somehow, beyond all possible reasoning, Malloy was there, fast asleep, warming himself in front of the stove. Sometime in the night, Malloy must have woken with a start, near frozen and achingly made his way back to 3775, where Murphy, in a state of half-sleep, had let him in before crashing back out on the sofa for the night. January continued to march onwards, and Marino was spending most nights now just staring on in bitter resentment as Malloy came in night after night to drink his daily dose of wood alcohol. Recently, Smith and McNally had been back in the bar and Marino had pushed them on making a decision concerning his backup plan to run down Malloy. The two men, though not especially keen to do the job themselves, had been negotiating with a taxi driver named Harry Green, a 24-year-old Bronx driver with a sociopathic streak. They had approached him with an offer to take care of the job in his taxi for $175, and Green had practically snapped their hands off. Truth be told, he would have done the job for a hell of a lot less, but there was no reason to let them know that. Now, Green, McNally and Smith sat in 3775, conversing quietly with Marino and tough Tony, figuring out how they were going to go about business. Much like all the other plans before it, it started with Malloy getting blind drunk on wood alcohol before the men would ship him out to a quiet street, toss him into the road and Green would smack him at full pedal with his taxi. Simple. The fateful night turned out to be January 30th. Another cold one, Green turned up to the speaker about 10pm, though with all the traffic on the roads, it was clearly still much too early. He killed time at 37.75, along with Marino, Tough Tony, his partner Maglioni, and an anonymous friend who Marino knew as Johnny, as well as McNally and Smith. By 11.30, the snow had begun to fall once more, and the entire entourage dragged a blind drunk Malloy out into the street, tossing him into the back of the cab. With Murphy in tow, who followed the men, locking up the speak behind them, that made eight burly gangsters all piling into the back of Green's taxi, with Murphy and Marino sitting on the laps of Tuftoni and Maglioni. The stuffed taxi cruised cautiously for a quarter mile, until they found a suitably deserted street. Tough Tony and Murphy stepped out into the street and dragged Molloy into the middle of the road and were just about to signal to Green to hit the gas when a light popped on in a building by the side of the road. Spooked, the trio quickly all piled back into the back of the taxi and commanded Green to find a new street. They drove on for a few blocks before finding a new road to do the deed and then the same two climbed back out, holding Molloy up in the middle of the road. All they had to do was signal to Green and then wait until the last minute where they'd jump out of the way, leaving Malloy to the car's front bumper. That was the plan at least, but Green was proven to be a bit of a poor shot. Either that, or Malloy was proven to be far more nimble than should have been possible for a man in his state of drunkenness. Three times Green roared the car down the street towards the cluster of men, missing each time, before Murphy and Tough Tony opted instead to toss him directly under the wheels. Except, Malloy was just not so easy to toss. Twice more the taxi flew down the street at full tilt, and twice more Malloy avoided dancing headlights. The sixth time, he was not so lucky, however. Colliding with Malloy at a full 50 miles an hour, his body was sent up and over the top of the car, landing in the gutter in a crumpled heap. The celebrations were prematurely halted, however, when a car sauntered down the road, stopping by the body. Panicked, Murphy and Tony jumped into Green's cab and the gang floored it back to 3775, where they unloaded and Green drove back to the taxi rank to clock in the car. The following few days were pretty tense at 3775. Marino and the gang were checking the newspapers for any reports of a hit and run, but nothing was turning up. Marino was half expecting Malloy to stroll back into the speak, right as rain, but nor did that happen either. They were trapped in a strange world of limbo, waiting for the news of a poor old Irishman hit by a passing car as he'd been walking home drunk. Days passed, however, and such a story was beginning to appear less and less likely. Finally, hoping to appease their concerns, Marino, Tough Tony and Maglioni drove out to the scene of the hit and run to see if they could spot the body for themselves perhaps Malloy had crawled up out of the gutter and collapsed somewhere off the side of the road out of sight but after searching all along the strip they came up with nothing there was no sign of Malloy at all this presented a problem with no body found there would be no way to cash their insurance policies the gang who had grown to hate the sight of Malloy over the previous months now needed to find him more than ever Or did they? Perhaps, they began to scheme, they could just go out and kill another person instead. They could pocket an ID card into the man before they did the deed, and nobody really be any the wiser. It wasn't like Malloy had any family or friends to scupper the identification. And so, the whole crew found themselves the following night scouring the speakeasies of Harlem looking for a body double. Unbeknownst to them, Malloy was tucked up warm and safe in a nearby hospital getting treatment for his fairly painful injuries. An anonymous call had been placed to the police, presumably from the driver of the car that had scared off the gang, alerting Officer Herman Lamp to Malloy's roadside condition. Officer Lamp had discovered Malloy and called the emergency services in time to see him carted off to Fordham Hospital in a pretty poor state. He'd bounced off the front of the cab where the impact, either from the front of the car or the road on his way back down, caused him a fractured skull, a fractured shoulder, and a severe concussion. Waking up in the hospital the next day was probably the worst hangover he'd ever suffered. With their new victim in tow, Marino and company were on their way back to 3775, where they planned to get him blind drunk. Joseph Patrick Murray had done nothing to deserve the ire of any of the men. However, they thought he made a suitable body double for Malloy, and so Tough Tony offered him a job as a ruse to get him to follow them all back to Marino's speakeasy. After Murphy had filled him with enough whiskey to put him in a state of near-unconsciousness, they slipped an ID card for Nicholas Mellory, the fictional insurance policy holder, into his pocket and led him out to the car with all eight men clambering into the back once more. The roads were proving to be too busy again, which stalled the operation just long enough for McNally to decide that he'd had enough of the whole affair. He fell out of the car into the road, brushing off the threats from tough Tony that if he told a soul about what they had been up to, he would regret it. The rest of the men carried out the same plan as they had a few nights prior with Malloy, tossing Murray into the road and launching him in front of the car as it drove close by. Murray proved to be much less of an acrobat than Malloy, who went straight under, bouncing off to the side of the road. Murphy and Tony jumped back into the cab, and the crew drove back to 3775 with an air of triumph. Shortly after they'd sped off from the scene, Valon Jenkins, a night shift worker at Mott Haven Feed Company, had stepped out into the street to check on Murray. He'd been doing his paperwork in the office, where, horrified, he'd witnessed the whole hit-and-run palaver. He'd managed to take down the licence plate of Green's taxi and called an ambulance, as well as hailing down beat officer John Mortenson. Murray was carted off to Lincoln Hospital, where he was registered as Nicholas Mellory. Another night passed of limbo for Marino. Green had dropped by 3775 to deliver the bad news that he'd spent the night getting grilled at the police station. When he had dropped the cab back to the taxi rank, a note had been left for him requesting he stop by, and fearing the worst, he did as he was told, managing to scrape through a round of questioning concerning his cab being reported in a hit-and-run incident. Marino took stock of the situation. So far, they'd bumped off two men with the hit-and-run plan, but had no bodies to prove it, and now the police were interested. Worse, they'd advanced very few paces, with the policies still not worth the paper they were written on, not until Nicholas Mellory's body turned up in the news, at least. The problem was, neither Nicholas Mellory was actually dead, and no stories would be forthcoming. By this point, Marino's nerves were just about spent, and so he... Tony and Pasquale came up with their plan of plans. They would rent a room somewhere nearby using Tony's counterfeit bills, lure a third victim to the speakeasy, get them drunk and take them to the room, gassing them there and then. They would be sure this time that the body would be found. Pasquale got in touch with a doctor he knew through work, Frank Manzella, and offered him $150 to examine the body and write up a death certificate, ensuring they could claim double indemnity. It meant involving yet another person in their plan, but at least they would get the job done right. Marino sent Murphy out to look for a room with a suitable gas pipe and sat back and waited. Just then, as he sat contemplating where to find their next victim, Mike Malloy walked into the speak and sat down at the bar. After five days in hospital, drying out, he could really do with a drink. As Marino listened to his story of how he'd woken up in hospital with a fractured skull, he could do nothing but stare wide-eyed whilst he poured him a glass of wood alcohol. Until now, one can be forgiven for thinking that Malloy was cruising through this chaos, completely unaware of the attempts on his life. Each morning was just a worse hangover than the last. However, even when Malloy was eventually warned about the situation by Murphy... Shortly after his return to the speak from his stay in the hospital, he only shrugged it off, telling Murphy that anyone with plans on his life would suffer it themselves. He either didn't take the warning seriously or didn't think Marino and his men were capable, because either way, he kept on returning to 3775 throughout February, knocking back glass after glass, bottle after bottle of neat wood alcohol. It was the night of the 22nd of February when tough Tony decided that it was time for him to take control of the situation. The night at the speak had been a quiet one and Malloy, as usual, had spent the evening propped up against the bar, as usual. Standing up from his table, Tony approached Molloy and threw down the gauntlet, challenging the old man to a drinking contest. One might have had second thoughts, challenging a man to a drinking contest who had spent the previous three months drinking copious amounts of neat methanol. But Tony fancied himself a winner. Instructing Murphy to fill his glass with whiskey and Malloy's with wood alcohol, the pair spent the following 20 minutes knocking back drink after drink. Murphy estimated that in that short time, Malloy had drunk about two quarts of raw wood alcohol before he had succumbed to its effects, passing out on the floor of the bar. Marino told Murphy to take Kreisberg and dragged Malloy up the street to the room that they had rented the day before. It was 9.30pm when they arrived, knocking on the door to the building, and when the landlady answered the door, she was not expecting her new tenant to be a drunken old Irishman foaming at the mouth. Murphy explained that Malloy was his brother and that he was feeling a touch unwell. He was going to let him sleep over for the night, and hopefully he would be feeling better in the morning. Stepping aside to let the men in, she frowned as they dragged Malloy up the stairs, his feet banging off each step. Once they were inside the room, Murphy opened a bottle of wood alcohol, placing it on the bedside cabinet. In the eventuality that Malloy would come around, at least he have something to drink to put him back to sleep. After they had returned to 3775, Tough Tony produced a piece of rubber hose and presented it to the men, telling them what they were to do. It was to be... The final end of Michael Malloy. After months of drinking pure poison and evading several shambolic attempts on his life, Kreensberg and Murphy slipped back into the rented room to find him still asleep on the bed, though he had apparently tucked into the wood alcohol that they'd left on the side whilst they had been gone. They dragged him off the bed, attached the rubber hose to the gas pipe, and stuffed it into his mouth, covering his face with a cloth whilst they turned on the tap. A few minutes later, Michael Malloy was no more. That night, Murphy slept in the room with Malloy's body in order to intercept the landlady the following morning and tell her that his brother was apparently gravely ill. So ill, in fact, that he was waiting for the doctor and the undertaker to arrive. He left to return to 3775, telling her that it would be best if she stayed out of the room for the time being. Back at the speakeasy, he met with Pasquale and the pair liaised with Dr Manzella and trooped back to the rented room. The doctor declared Malloy dead and wrote up a death certificate under the name of Nicholas Mellory with a cause of death as lobile pneumonia, which he also informed the landlady of on the way out. The next steps fell to Pasquale, who took on the funeral, writing up a detailed bill for the insurance company, including the rental of a parade of hearses and a fancy coffin, with the whole charade costing $460. In reality, he tossed Malloy's body into the cheapest wooden crate he had to hand forgoing any embalming or dressing, and dropped the body into a charity grave in Ferncliff Cemetery. All in, the real funeral costs totaled less than $120. A few days later, Pasquale and Murphy took a trip to the Metropolitan Insurance offices and cashed their false policy for $800, of which Pasquale kept $400 and Marino was given $335. Murphy got the remaining $65. Pasquale paid the doctor $50, and Green got a whopping $20. The next stop was the Prudential Life Insurance Company, but stubborn as ever, they decided to derail the whole plan once more. It was customary to have an agent see the body before making any payout, which was by now an impossibility, seeing as how Pasquale had already stuck it in the ground. He told the company as much, which led them to immediately open an investigation into the matter. The investigation fell to agent Adolphe Caldervey, who went and spoke to the landlady of the rented room and Pasquale's florist friend, who, fortunately for the gang, was sharp enough to play along, despite the fact that he had no payslips for the fictional Nicholas Mellory, and when asked to describe him by the agent, he failed spectacularly. The agent scheduled a meeting with Pasquale and Murphy, and when he met them, his suspicions only grew. Suspecting a forgery of the signature, he asked Pasqua to provide an itemised bill for the funeral in order to check his handwriting. Pasqua agreed to forward it onto him, but when it arrived, Caldervey opened the envelope to find it completely typewritten. If things were beginning to unravel on the policy front, it was nothing to what was going on back at Marino's place. Tough Tony and Joseph Maglioni were arguing over who was going to get the largest share of the as-yet non-existent prudential payouts, when the argument turned to violence. Maglioni shot Tony in the shoulder and pounced on him whilst he recoiled back through the bar. As the men scrabbled around on the floor, Maglioni managed to steal Tony's revolvers from his belt. Recognising the bleak situation, Tony made for the exit, charging up the street, but Maglioni wasn't going to let him go so easy. Flying out into the street in pursuit, he took aim and shot Tony twice more, his second shot striking him through the chest and killing him outright in the middle of the street. The altercation had been overheard by a passing beat officer who promptly arrested Maglione and took him and Murphy, who had been picked up as a witness, into the station. It was the very last thing that Marino wanted right now, with the policy so up in the air. The police attention that was bound to fall onto the speak was about as welcome as the sight of Malloy at the bar these past few months, and who knew what Maglione or Murphy would say when the police got them talking? Luckily, Maglioni wasn't about to land himself, nor anyone else, in any more trouble than he could possibly get away with, and he told the police that he'd shot Tony for no reason other than a falling out after Tony had spread rumours behind his back. For now, at least the insurance murder scam was kept under wraps, but Marino's speak still managed to make the headlines the following day when the shooting was reported in the New York Dailies in a story listing a series of four gang killings. In the fourth killing, the victim was Anthony Bastone, whose reputation along 3rd Avenue in the Bronx had earned him the sobriquet of Tough Tony, was shot to death at 5am yesterday outside a resort at 3775 3rd Avenue. Joseph Maglioni, his alleged slayer, ran into patrolman John Larkin as he fled and was held on charge of homicide and a violation of the Sullivan Law. If Marino thought things were bad, they would only get worse over the coming weeks. In April, McNally was arrested for, for carrying a concealed firearm, and then Kreisberg found himself in a jail cell after he was arrested for acting as a lookout for Marino's cousin, Marie Baker, who was operating a robbery scheme that had seen her dubbed the Pants Bandit and the Two-Gun Girl. Marie would lure rich men into alleyways, get them to drop their pants, and then fleece them with their wallet before running off. The men would be too slow or just too embarrassed to give any chase, And so, for several months, the duo operated a pretty good racket until she was captured trying to rob a butcher shop in the Bronx. Meanwhile, rumours were circling through the streets of an old Irishman that would not die. The anonymous drunk Malloy had, albeit posthumously, become something of a legend around the Bronx, and stories of his immense capacity for toxic liquor were circulating rapidly. They eventually got back to police, who initially dismissed the stories as so ridiculous that they were undoubtedly fictional. At least, they doubted it until they noticed that in the stories, the same names kept cropping up over and over again. For Marino, it all happened in a flash. Malloy's body was ordered to be exhumed, and due to Pasquale's laziness with the burial, choosing to only bill him for embalming rather than actually doing it, The body was able to be examined and a proper autopsy was carried out where evidence of the gassing came to light after the blood test showed signs of carbon monoxide poisoning. John McNally, who had been staring down a lengthy sentence for his charge of carrying a concealed weapon, ID'd the body as Michael Malloy and told the police of how he had been offered $200 to kill him just a few months earlier. In order to get out of his current predicament with the police, he went on to unravel the entire scheme to the police whose own investigations were now confirmed. They picked up Marino and Pasquale, and whilst the pair had both already come up with their own stories that went a long way to remove them of any guilt, it was eventually futile, given the fact that everyone else in the story had folded instantly. Five indicted as murderers in insurance ring probe. Evidence that the lethal tentacles of a murder trust may have been extended toward a dozen unsuspecting victims poured into a Bronx district attorney's office yesterday as five alleged members of the insurance ring were indicted on charges of first-degree murder. The indictment concerned only the death of Michael Malloy, 40, an unemployed stationary engineer. Dr. Frank A. Manzella of 249 East 116th Street, a former Republican alderman from Harlem, was indicted as an accessory after the fact and for giving false information in a death certificate. The five indicted for murder were Marino, 27, of 1818 Pilgrim Avenue, proprietor of a speakeasy in which the gang made its headquarters, Frank Pasquale, 24, of 1910 Hobart Avenue in the Bronx, an undertaker with an establishment of 105 East 117th Street, Harry Green, 24 of 2530 Lurting Avenue in the Bronx, a taxi driver. Green not only ran down Malloy, the state charges, but also ran down an unidentified man while Malloy was recovering in a hospital from his injuries. A card had been placed in the second victim's pocket to identify him as the insured engineer. Daniel Kreisberg, 29, of 653 Caldwell Avenue, Bronx, who, according to the district attorney, dragged Malloy from a bed in the furnished room placed a gas tube in his mouth, wrapped a towel around his head and turned on the gas. Joseph Murphy, 28, homeless, who was being held in the Bronx County Jail as a material witness in another murder case. He posed as Malloy's brother. Although the papers suggested the gang had been involved in some kind of criminal ring, the mastermind in as many as a dozen murders, it was clear to anyone that knew the facts of the case that any sort of organisation was overstating the men's competence to an outstanding degree. Harry Green and Joseph Maglioni turned states' evidence before the trial which saw Marino attempt to plead innocent by reasons of insanity on the grounds that his physician had recognised in him delusions of grandeur after Marino had told him that he wanted to make something of his life. The physician told the court that this was utterly preposterous, as he believed quite firmly that anyone of Marino's standing would never amount to anything. It was a weak argument to begin with, and made no less strong by Marino feigning amnesia, which he blamed on his social diseases. Pasquale attempted to sidestep the whole affair, claiming that he had taken part in the scheme under threats from Tough Tony, a line parroted by everyone else, who had all clearly realised. That it would be best if they could shoulder the blame onto a man who was already dead as expected their defence fell on deaf ears and the jury returned a guilty verdict to the court at 4:15 a.m. on Wednesday the 18th of October 1933 the following day they were pushed back into the court to hear the official sentence in maglioni and green who had turned state's evidence got 5 to 10 years in sing sing despite green telling the court outright that if he was released He might well kill again, if I needed the money. Whilst the rest of the men were to be hauled off to Sing Sing to be executed by electric chair. Over the following eight months, the men all attempted to weasel out of their punishment, appealing the verdict on three separate occasions, though each time the applications were promptly thrown out. In the end, they only served to prolong the inevitable, and on June 7th 1934, They were tossed into the chair at Sing Sing, affectionately dubbed Old Sparky, and sent on their merry way. Even before the trial had taken place, Michael Malloy had grown to near legendary status throughout the sketchy speakeasies in the back alleys of New York. With all the publicity he gained from the trial, he quickly became dubbed Iron Mike, the man who could not die. His stories entertained for a while, and songs were even written in his memory but eventually, like all the tales of the underclasses, his two fell to the wayside and slipped into long-forgotten memories. That year, Prohibition ended with the repeal of the 18th Amendment on December 5th, 1933. For the 13 years that it was in law, it is claimed that it only had any effect in stopping people from drinking in the first few months following the enactment, but in the long term, it had no lasting effects. Clearly, with the proliferation of speakeasies, It seemed as if everyone just turned to the black markets that were turning a boom in trade, enriching organised crime games and making millionaires out of mobsters. Marino and co, in their greed to hop aboard the gravy train, had attempted to turn mobster, but failed spectacularly. They were either fantastically incompetent, or Michael Malloy just proved to be the wrong target. Perhaps it was something of both. One thing is for certain, the man could sure drink. And eat and survive the cold and evade incoming taxis. If only he had managed to survive the gas. So that was the absolutely bonkers story of Mike Malloy. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that after these short advert breaks. Welcome back. So, thanks very much for listening. Yeah, that was a, a pretty crazy story. Um, but it was a really interesting one to research for me because it was a period of American history that, uh, and a sort of um, aspect of American culture, I guess, or cultural and history that I, I hadn't really kind of um, investigated or known too much about outside of, to be honest, you know, things like the Untouchables film and and you know probably Roger Rabbit. <laughs> so um yeah you know to actually sort of um in, sort of read a lot more into it for this um episode was really really enjoyable for me. Um pretty crazy time. I thought it was pretty crazy how obviously flawed prohibition was right from the outset um you know like like it, it was just set up to make criminals rich. It seemed <laughs> um but but you know that 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 was just my take on it. It just seemed really naive, and, and to let it run for thirteen years, I just was quite surprising to me. You know, I, I was quite shocked. But um, but anyway, that's not really the focus on this. It's more about Mike Malloy, who was insanely just Iron Man stomach or what? Like you can only imagine how awful he woke up every morning. <laughs> like how awful he felt when he woke up every morning after that. But, um, yeah, really interesting story. There's not a lot to say about it other than if you want to see read more about it, there's a really good book. And in fact, one of the only books um, which is, is a good book. Um, it, it's it's definitely a quite short book and, and quite a quick, easy read. Um, but anyway, it's called On the House, The Bizarre Killing of Mike Malloy um, by Simon Reed. Um And that's pretty much as far as I could see, like the only kind of book on the case. Like I say, it's quite a quick read. It's not like academic in any way. It's it's a quite a fun sort of page turnery sort of read. So I'd recommend grabbing hold of that if you want to read sort of about the story and get like all the gory details. But otherwise, to be honest, a lot of what can be gleaned from this story is can be found just, just straight out of the newspapers because it was reported on quite heavily. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would honestly recommend just, if you've got access to the arch- like newspaper archives, just digging through them for the story. Um, but, yeah, if you do want it all in one place, to say, like, uh, aside from this episode that I've just done, uh, yeah, if you want to kind of get into the, the very gory details, you know, all, all the tiny little kind of minutiae of the story. Yeah, The Bizarre Killing of Michael Malloy by Simon Reed is is, is worth a go. But other than that, yeah, I mean, I, I, all of the... the stuff that i read for this episode is in the um show notes anyway but um yeah uh, that a lot of kind of uh prohibition era history books are, are, are around obviously because it's quite a um i i guess it's quite a, a an, an easy sell um for a history author and it's a fascinating time and an important time i guess with all the kind of um organized crime but yeah, I mean, I've never been one to really be interested in organised crime and that. But um, I did find it really interesting um, to, to read about. There was one, um, Bootleggers and Beer Barons of the Prohibition Era by Anne Funderberg. Uh, that that was an interesting book to read about, um, about the organised crime and that. So yeah, other than that, um, I think that's probably about it. There's not really a lot to say about this episode other than, you know, like, obviously it's just a shame that he died at the end, right? So everyone's kind of rooting for him. He's this kind of the, the ultimate underdog. Um, and, he, and he seemed to do so well for it. Um, I think that the, the part where they all piled into the taxi is just unbelievable. And it, it makes you wonder why there's not a film about this yet because just that that one scene there could just be absolute hilarity it would be brilliant wouldn't it as a i imagine it sort of as a dark comedy sort of resembling something like the um Burke and hare uh comedy um that simon pegg was in um i it would work so well as that i th- as a sort of similar sort of vibe to that film like a very black comedy about it and you could just imagine that scene with the car like all these big burly gangsters sitting on each other's laps, slightly uncomfortable, like giving each other like that sort of side eye, you know, that kind of no one ever mentions this again, kind of looks to each other. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, that that's that's the end of that. Um, so yeah, if you'd like to contact me, uh, you can do so. Uh, you can contact me uh, by email, which is contact at darkhistories.com. Um, all of the links to the ways you can get in touch with me via social media and all the rest are in the show notes, uh, as well as uh, at darkhistories.com, which is the main website. And there you can find um, how to get onto the Discord with like a invitation on there, um, as well as all of the social media links um, and all the ways that you can, yeah, say contact me or... Um, Get in touch or support if you would like to um and there's loads of different ways that you can support some of them offer um you know like some nice incentives and and little bonuses uh well with quite a few um sort of old uh kind of bonus episodes and videos and things that are that are on the patron um and others that are just you know sort of uh, uh just simple cheap ways that you can support if you'd like to um including uh you know just uh sharing the show with your friends and and dropping reviews and things like that which all goes along to support the show so yeah uh if you'd like to do any of that stuff darkissues.com is is your place to be otherwise uh thanks very much for listening i'll be back uh soon for the next episode until then i hope you stay well i'll see you really soon cheers sleep tight